Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. I'm a female leader in sports. I'm the general manager of a AAA baseball team in minor league baseball, and I'm the first woman to hold this title in nearly 20 years. And I'm here with the Leadership is Female podcast to make sure that this amount of time never goes by again before another woman leads. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. So I am here to interview successful women in sport to uncover opportunity, learn the tips, learn from our mistakes, learn from our successes to get you to the top faster. Join me and my guests week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. I will lead her forward because leadership is female. On the Leadership is Female podcast, the topic is clear, female leadership. We focus specifically on women who work in sports, but today I turn the mic to a woman who played sports for a living for 11 years. The lessons in leadership are threaded throughout this entire episode, and the parallels between leadership on the playing field and leadership in the front office are strikingly similar. Today's guest is Lauren Crandall, a member of the Women's National Field Hockey Team from 2005 to 2016, where she competed in the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Olympic Games. She captained the team from 2011 to 2016. Lauren also competed in three Pan American Games, winning gold in both the 2011 and 2015 Games, the 2014 World Cup, where her team achieved a historic fourth place finish, was a gold medalist at the 2014 Champions Challenge, and won bronze at the 2016 Champions Trophy. In 2014, Crandall was an FIH Player of the Year nominee and twice selected to the All-Pan American team. Before joining the national team, Crandall attended Wake Forest University, where she was a two-time national champion, two-time ACC champion, and three-time All-American. Crandall was elected team captain her junior and senior years. In 2006, she was a finalist for the Honda Award. Lauren Crandall now works as a marketing representative at Federated Insurance, where she has won two sales incentive awards and awarded the Monthly Leadership Council Award in consecutive years. Wow, a decorated woman to say the least, but also one of the most humble people I know. As you'll hear, Lauren's leadership comes naturally, and she's generous enough to share many incredible leadership truths with all of us. Much respect to this decorated athlete and now successful businesswoman, Lauren Crandall. Today on the Leadership is Female podcast, we've got Lauren Crandall, U.S. Women's National Team Defender and three-time Olympian. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, so happy you're here. So if you could start us off uh, and tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself and how you got there. Sure. So um, as you said, I'm a three-time Olympian in the sport of field hockey. I made our women's national team in 2005 when I was a sophomore in college. I competed in the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Olympic Games. Um, After the Rio Games, I retired and started a real-world job that I'm currently doing today, um, doing commercial insurance. Awesome. Well, um, you are our first Olympian on the podcast, and many people probably don't know what a geek I am for the Olympics. I have 
so, so much admiration for um, Olympic athletes and all that you put into your sport. So we're going to take it from the top opening ceremonies. <laughs> Tell me about uh, that. the best one. Yes. Yeah. What was, what was the best one? What was that like representing the United States? I mean, it is a special feeling. So I'll go with my first opening ceremonies in 2008, which was the Beijing Olympics. Um, we, what a lot of people don't understand is the opening ceremonies for athletes is super taxing. So we are on our feet for like eight hours. So it's not a lot of uh, athletes that don't go to it because maybe they're competing the next day. Um, there's a reason behind it because it takes a lot out of you. But since this was our first one and it was the first time uh, Team USA in the sport of field hockey had qualified in their own right since the 1988 Olympics. So it was like a huge deal for all of us, even though it was a younger one on the team. And uh, we left early. So you're all dressed up and, you know, Ralph Lauren, you're just looking um, so nice and chic in all of that. And um, we actually had, we went into the, I think it was the gymnastics, or I think it was the fencing hall in 2008. We went to the fencing and a um, lot of security there. And we had George W. Bush, Laura Bush, and George Bush Sr. come in and speak to all of Team USA. So that was kind of the first thing where we're like, mm, this isn't normal life. Like this isn't a normal day. So it kind of just got you into the whole scope of okay, you're the best of the best of US athletes and you have your president speaking to you guys directly. That was pretty cool. But the moment that I don't think any athlete that goes into the games will ever forget is when you're lined up and uh, the United States is about to be called and you go into this tunnel because each opening ceremony is in a big stadium. You go into the tunnel and so you're in like a dark crowded space with all the other Team USA athletes and someone inevitably just starts chanting USA. So you're just like, USA, you. And it's the most amazing feeling of pride as you walk into the stadium and all the lights hit you. And it's kind of like, whoa, like you just realize what big stage you're on. But at the same time, you realize how small of a, of a person you are on that big stage, if that makes any sense. Like I'm one athlete on a team of 16 athletes in a country with, we have like one of the most, the biggest, I think athletes, athlete population. Uh, and then we're one country of like 205 countries. So it's kind of like, you're this small piece to this, this huge puzzle of greatness. So it's, you're filled with pride, but I was very humbled by it because of just the immensity of like, wow, you're Lauren Crandall from Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and you're walking in the Beijing opening ceremonies, like with Yao Ming holding the Chinese flag. I mean, it's just, there's so many emotions and it's so incredible that it's, it's hard to explain, but I'll say this, it never gets old. In 2012, we had the opening ceremonies and same thing. And even more excitement because I knew some of my teammates who weren't in 2008, they were going to be experiencing it for the first time. So it's kind of like a like a motherly pride kind of thing where you're like, oh, I can't wait for them to experience all those same things. So it's, it does not get old. Let me just say that. Wow. That's amazing. I had all the feels I can picture that moment because we, we see it on, on TV here and um, what a great explanation you had and, and the humility you had behind it. But at the same time, are you like, wow, this is me here achieving my dream. 
in a way you're kind of like, what, what am I doing here? Like, is this, um, is this like, is this real life? I mean, I would say our 2008 team, um, that was a huge deal for us to qualify for the Olympics. Cause in field hockey, there's only 12 countries that qualify. So we have a, we have a smaller, there's certain sports where they automatically qualify or it's, you know, not a big deal for the, you know, for you to represent your country there. Um, but for us, it hadn't happened in a while. And we had um, my captain at the time, I think she was like Tiki Barber was like 31 or 32, not the Giants running back, our own Tiki Barber. Um, and for all of us to be experiencing that, that's the only time that all 16 of us experienced that same moment of an opening ceremonies in an Olympic games together. It didn't matter your age or anything. And it was just it's just surreal. And I'm glad I was just able, like, you're not thinking about much. You're just kind of taking it all in and being like, okay, this is what this is like. Like, this is the stage that's set. And it happens before the game start for the most part, because it really sets the stage of like, this is a huge deal. This is the biggest stage you'll ever play on. And this is the, this is the opening part of it. And then our tournament lasts about two weeks. So we have a pretty long tournament to have to refocus therein, but, um, it's, yeah, it's incredible. So you're not only Olymp an Olympian, you're also a gold medalist. Um, you won two gold medals and a bronze. Wow. Um, not in the Olympics though. What was that like? Um, I mean, it's so easy when you're an athlete to get caught up in having the wrong color medal, I would say, or like with the bronze. I mean, there were, I, I will... I will say that there are some silver medals that um, I maybe threw very far out of frustration um, because a silver medal means you lost in the last game. Um, but now looking back, those they mean so much more because you know the process it took to get there. And so you appreciate, like for me being on the team, we lost a lot, like we, we we were really good at that. And it was, um, and it was a struggle. And now when I see like the gold medal of the Pan American games, um, the second gold medal we won. So repeat champs, that's a huge deal. I see a bronze medal in a champion's trophy and you don't, you don't see the medals, you see the, the challenges it took, um, and what you overcame and you remember those team moments. Um, you remember specific parts of games, but it's more of like, I see those and it's a, it's a process you remember and it puts a smile on your face. It's not a sense of pride of like, I had a goal. Now, if I won a gold medal at the Olympics, maybe it would be different of like, whoa, I'm a freaking Olympic medalist. Like that's kind of crazy. But I think a lot of people that I've spoken with who have medaled in the Olympic games, it's really, there's pride behind it, but it's not just because of that one moment that made them win. It's the process and the journey that it took for them to get there. And that's kind of the memories that they have behind it. Yeah. And you played 279 games with the U.S. women's national field hockey team. So, you know, to, to your point, it wasn't just the Olympics. It was the Pan Am games. It was all these tournaments um, all over the globe. What is the life of a professional athlete like representing the U.S. and, and all that travel? 
there there's a saying at most of the olympic training centers that say it's um it's not every four years it's every day because as spectators uh, of the olympics you know it's every four year every two years because you have the winter games and you have the summer games so you kind of get your fix and there's a lot of excitement the few months leading up to those games but what a lot of people don't understand is someone's been working for those games for eight years prior to that right so the kid that you've never known about who now is gonna hopefully make it to the olympics like they've been they've been disciplined they've been working their butt off they've been making sacrifices typically not getting paid as they're doing it and struggling all the while to try and achieve this great dream so I feel lucky enough. I, I always feel that I never had the dream to be an Olympic athlete. I was never like a small child of one day I'm going to go to the Olympic games. You know, I love watching Olympics. I was a tomboy. I loved all sports. Um, but for me, my process was very much like I'm having fun. Like, let me keep doing this. When I was in high school and I got selected for things and they're like, Hey, do you want to go to Virginia beach to play in a tournament? I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. I'm like, I like playing and we'll travel here. Hey, do you want to go to this? And it was just these selection events that I didn't even realize were selection events that eventually get you to um, a pipeline area of like a junior national team where all of a sudden you, I just really had my head down and was having fun and was competitive and um, just had opportunities that were offered to me that I took advantage of. And all of a sudden I was on the women's national team and never had the dream to do it. And even when I made the national team, it wasn't like, oh, I want to go to the 2000 Olympics. It was just like, okay, let's go to New Zealand. This is fun. Um, and going from that, that young college kid in 2005 to captaining the team in 2016, one of the best teams that I've ever been part of, the learning curve that you have around and the mindset you have behind it of what it actually does take to succeed, um, the sacrifices you do need to make, the discipline that it takes. Um, I probably didn't learn that until the last four years of my 12-year career. So I'd say leading up to the 2016 Olympics is when I really realized, okay, this isn't, not that it's not fun anymore, but like, I'm sick of losing. I, I want to achieve and I want to be a part of a team that achieves together, both like as functioning as a team in our decision-making on and off the field in the culture that we create, kind of all of that. And it was the last four years that I was a part of that I really realized how often you have to say no to so much in life in order to find the success that you want on the field. And it, I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out, but um, I, think, um, I think I felt confident in my retirement because I was able to live out everything I thought that I could. And I finally achieved um, what I guess I initially set out to achieve, which was just being part of something bigger than myself and leaving a legacy for others to follow. What did you learn about leadership when you were selected as captain? I, I learned so much. I mean, it's a constant at least for me, it was a constant process of learning and growing, right? Failing, evaluating what that failure was, learning from it, growing, failing again, analyzing that. You know, it's it's that constant cycle, which I feel like you see in a lot of elite athletes or successful people is you, if you always win, 
you're not necessarily getting better. Um, and there's a time where you will fall on your face, right? That's why we all love underdogs. Um, it's, it's hard to be the best and to stay on top. And I really think you learn the most through your failures as long as you go through the correct process. Um, I actually became captain of the team in 2011. And the last game I played was at the end of 2010. It was our World Cup qualifier against Korea. I had never played in a World Cup before because I broke my hand a week before the previous um, World Cup. So I missed out on that, had to wait another four years. So we're playing Korea. Um, I'm like the center defender. We're losing one nothing. I'm freaking out at the ref um, to try and get a call that didn't make sense. I get yellow carded. It's like the first yellow card I've gotten. So you have to go sit on the sideline for five minutes. Well, there was only three and a half minutes left in the game. We ended up losing the game. I think they scored right after I, I got the card and we ended up losing the game. And it was this, it, for me, it was a nightmare because I missed out on the World Cup, um, which was a career opportunity I had never had before. And I failed in doing it. And the next time I come back, because that was the end of 2010, I think, when I came back in 2011, the coach, Lee Bottomied, pulled me in and was like, you know, there's a there's some people that don't think you acted right at the end of that game, which I didn't, I'll be the first to raise my hand on that. And he's like, you know, there's a few things that I can do to try and write it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a co-captain because I think the spirit that you had on there and the fire you showed something. And I was like, what? You're, I got a yellow card. So you're gonna make me a captain because what? Like we lost that game in my mind, we lost that game because of me. Um, but I guess he saw something in it that was like, okay, you're going to be captain at the time our, the captain we had was injured. So it was kind of like a fill-in slot, I thought. Um, so I was younger. I was, I was, I don't know how old I was, but there were older girls on the team. And I was like, I don't think this is going to go very well. Um, but it wasn't my first time being a younger captain with people older than me um, in high school and college. I had the same thing. So that was like thrown catapulted into a leadership position when I was not prepared for it um, and didn't really know what it meant. The only thing I knew was the experiences I had had prior. And I think if I look at who I was when I wore the captain's band back in 2011 and who I ended up as in 2016 was like a fully transformative person, both um, attitude wise, um, culture wise, player wise, captain wise. I mean, there's, there's so much I learned along the way that was instrumental in developing my ability to develop my teammates, which is kind of how I saw my role. Yeah. So what were some of those lessons that you instilled on the team? Is it, was it more of the younger crop? Is it all the, all the women on your team? Like how did that captain role affect all the players? Was it, is there some striation between the way you work with maybe younger, younger girls or older women? So I think something that I think is a sign of a, a great leader and, and captain in this case is um, emotional intelligence. So the ability to understand first and foremost, who you are, um, who I am as a person and how I interact, like who I am as a player and as a person on the team, because I truly think that holding a leadership position or being deemed captain 
doesn't mean anything more than you have more responsibility, but you don't change the way you act. You don't change the way you address people. You don't, you don't become a different person because you're supposed to wear a captain's band. I've always said that in every interview I've had. Uh, the only thing that separates me from my teammates is I wear a band around my leg and I call heads or tails at the beginning of a game, which I was very good at. Let me tell you, <laughs> like a 70% rate. Um, but other than that, I just, I was always myself. And I think authenticity is what you first need to recognize about yourself, both your strengths and your weaknesses. Because if you only have strengths, you're lying to yourself and people are going to see through that. So knowing what, what I was good at and why I think my coach saw me, it, it, what I could do in that captain role, but also some of my weaknesses and being able to rely on other people um, and knowing when there's something that's, that's a weakness for me and being able to know my teammates well enough to know when it's their strength and to be able to ask for help of, hey, this is what we have. I don't think I'm the right person to deal with this. Help me out here. Um, it's really a matter of if you're authentic and you know yourself and you can know your teammates well enough to um, understand their strengths and weaknesses, I think the best leaders are the ones that um, that ask each player to be a leader in their own right when their strengths pop up. So like in a way, pop-up leadership, it's like a military thing that someone once told me, but um, the ability to have somebody stand up at any given time when they recognize it's a strength of theirs and lead the team on because not we're not always gonna be at our best and leaders will make mistakes. Um, but when you can ask for help and when you can create more leaderful people in a team situation, that's where you're achieving your, it's like in my mind, like your greatest accomplishment. If I can create leaderful people so that I don't have to lead really well, they're the ones, you know, they're, they're the engine that's driving the force um, into where we want to be and where we want to go. I think that's the most powerful way to lead. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is authentic leadership, high emotional intelligence, pop-up leadership from the team that you're leading. So empowering them to use their strengths. You know, those are um, really common themes among all the female leaders that I've interviewed. It's, it's pretty incredible, the parallels. It doesn't have to be in the front office. It's also the, that leadership on the field or of the athletes and um, those parallels are are pretty incredible and, and paramount. I love what you said there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's there's there's not a lot of secrets. I feel like to it whenever like there's no special pill of like I'm captain and now I do this. It's that's why I say my journey of of who I was as a, as a leader, um, and then obviously with the naming of a captain is is was transformative because you realize more of these things, right? I don't have to be anyone besides myself, um, but I have, to, I have to be more emotionally intelligent. I have to be more aware of um, seeing issues. I started to be a lot more direct. It's probably because I'm not very patient. Um, I can't stand when we know a problem has to be solved or like we're waiting for the answer and everyone knows the answer, but nobody wants to say it. I'm like, Okay, let like you just call someone like I, I'm not patient enough to be like, well, let's just take our time to get there. No, like, let's get there as fast as we can. If we have an issue, I'm going to address the issue with the direct person of who it involves so that we can squash it and move forward. 
Um, and a lot of that towards the end of my career is what came up is the emotional intelligence to recognize um, some concerns before they turned into issues and issues before they turned into problems. Because I think a lot of times in leadership, if we don't, if we're not in touch with, with those we're supposed to be leading and we're not aware of what's happening. So I say like locker room talk, right? What are the murmurings that are happening in the locker room? Because that's where if you can address them early, they're squashed and you move on, you give people a platform to be able to speak and say, hey, what are the concerns? Let's address this with the people who are involved or with the whole team, because there were cases like that that would happen. Um, and you're just, you're able, you're just, the more aware you are, the more you can empower people to, to be able to speak up when they do have concerns so that you're not trying to play the guessing game. And then that open communication style is like, it was groundbreaking for us uh, leading up to the 2016 Rio games. Cause that was the biggest difference between the prior teams I was on and this team is we worked really hard for two years to create an open communication environment where everybody trusted that we were all on the same page and we were all making sacrifices. And when there were concerns or when somebody addressed uh, an issue that they had with the player, they knew that it was with the best intention of moving our team closer to being on that podium. So it's a, when you're part of a team like that, it's a special moment. And I guess I, I take pride in knowing that I was part of, of that culture creation, which is difficult to do, especially for females, right? It's hard to, you know, not be catty with certain stuff or when catty things do come up, we can just have the thing of like, okay, this is ridiculous. What's the base of this problem? You know, like really be able to just cut through the crap in a way and, and get to it. And I think that that directness probably based on my impatience is what led me to be the, the leader that I ended up being. Um, and I think that women, because we're very emotionally intelligent, we're very aware, hyper aware mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, of others' emotions. We have more concerns, but I think that is one of our greatest strengths because you're, if you know the people you're leading well enough, it allows you to relate and help problem solve because ultimately it's just about solving problems together. Yeah. And, and the parallels between locker room talk and water cooler talk, you know, in the workplace are totally apparent. Um, it's, it's that back channeling that can really upset a culture. And so your approach of being direct, um, having those conversations head on, you know, settling any unrest um, is, is what created this greater culture that led your team to, to more success in the future. And before we move on, um, I've got one more Olympic question. Okay, Olympic Village, tell me about it. And also who was the coolest person you met at the Olympics? Oh man. Um, I feel like I'm so old now that I forget everything, but the Olympic village is such a, an interesting, incredible space. Um, my favorite place in the Olympic village is the cafeteria. Here's why I love food. So that's number one, but you go to a foreign country. So Beijing, okay. Very culturally different than America. London, not too different from America. And then Rio, quite different. But you go to these countries and those countries are asked to feed the entire world and to feed the elite athletes of the entire world through 
healthy meals. I mean, you have different cultures, religions, ethnicities, diet restrictions, like everything. You have some people who can't stuff their face enough, like rowers. And then you have other people who are very like wrestlers who are trying to cut weight and don't eat for like five days. So I think it's the most incredible space in the village because logistically of what they're doing, but also every athlete that stays in the village has to eat at the cafeteria. So the people watching in the cafeteria is the best thing you will ever come across. You see every country's outfits, their styles, like you see what people look like, you know, like, right, different. You try and name what their sport is based on their physique. That's my, that's my favorite game of all time. You're like, that's, it's probably a rower. He's tall, you know, broad shoulder. And then you're like, that's a swimmer. If you, if you actually have someone who will go up and ask them, but the, the differences of athletes, physique, and like, it's just so amazing. It's like the best people watching you'll ever come across. And because everybody has to come in and out of it, you get to see some of the famous people, which is pretty cool. You're like, I can't believe I'm sharing a meal. Like in 2008, we walked into the cafeteria um, and there was a, a gaggle of people, but like immense. We had no idea who they were around. And you're like, what is going on? And we like kind of looked through, it was Roger Federer. Mm. And I happened to be with two teammates who are very pushy and I'm not, I'm like, cool, that's Roger Federer. That's awesome. I'm just going to walk away. And they're like, no, we're going to get our picture. They were huge. I'm like, don't do it guys. This is embarrassing. So like went through people and to see, so he's, he's a big deal, right? He was a big deal in 2008. Um, he was like shell shocked at the amount of attention that he got from like all the other Olympic athletes when he came in. I think I asked, I was like, what did you like, did you think it'd be like this? And he was kind of like, I, I had no idea this many people would like want to hang out with me. So it was kind of cool to me. That was a very humble moment of like Roger Federer didn't realize how big of a deal he was or how big of a deal he would be amongst a bunch of other Olympians. Um, but it's just, and that all happened in the cafeteria because everyone's got to eat, right? Like that's the place they're going. Um, so that's the coolest part, but you always see like how people want to have their downtime. Um, we, for some reason, always stayed across from the Italians. I don't know what it was, but in two different Olympic villages, there was a courtyard across from us with the Italians and like, they'll stay up a little bit later. They'll play music a little bit later. Like, it's just, it's just so interesting of living quote unquote with, with other athletes from other countries. Um, so it's a, it's a really cool experience. It's really interesting. Um, I came across a lot of people. I mean, I think also in 2008, again, my first Olympic games where you're shell-shocked about a lot of things and you don't realize you're like, oh my gosh, I'm here. Um, uh, the beach volleyball player, Walsh. Um, Carrie Walsh. Quite, yeah, she's quite tall. Yeah. And I went out, I was getting coffee in the morning, not really aware, and she was right next to me, very tall. I'm just used to being short. And uh, we talked about something else, like, where's it? We just talked about colic. Is there creamer or what's this? And like, what's that? And um, I think I was like, oh, thanks for your help or whatever went back. And someone was like, do you know who that was? And I was like, no, they were tall. And I was kind of afraid to look up at them. And we're like, that was Walsh. Like, she's a gold medalist. And they're, you're like, this is just, I just had coffee next. Like, she just told me where the creamer was. And it was just a very normal experience. Um, so you also have some of those is like, I think people are a really big deal. But at the end of the day, 
they they've made a lot of the same sacrifice the commonalities in what you guys have done and continue to do that led up to that situation are very apparent and so it's like you talk about common threads it's a it's an interesting common thread to go throughout but i've gotten to meet the only time i was really shell-shocked um maybe was something with tennis Djokovic in 2016 I saw him playing tennis in the village he was probably just like warming up or just trying to like relax and I remember just staring I was like that's Djokovic I'm on my balcony just watching him like people pay a lot of money to watch this guy compete and I'm just hanging out drinking coffee watching him just like play around for fun I'm like this is unbelievable it's just the craziest thing because you're literally like shrinking down the globe yeah. of elite athletes into this one city within a city yep. for, you know, three, three weeks or whatever. I just, it's, it is beyond interesting. I'm sure we could go and talk about this forever. Hey, just a quick break to remind you to go on over to emilyjansen.com to download your free copy of the 10 myths about being a female leader in sports. This guide will show you what's possible to achieve in life while having an incredible career in sports and give you the tips so you can get to the top faster. Head on over to emilyjansen.com and grab your copy. It's free. Now let's get back to this great interview. You have since retired um, from, from a player of field hockey, but you are an athlete rep on the board. Um, and, and have a role with the USOPC. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what that means? This is in addition to Lauren's day job. Um, she, she stays involved with the sport. So um, what, what does that look like? Will you be attending the Olympic Games next summer? Um, how, how do you work as an athlete rep? What are those goals? So I... I sit on the USA Field Hockey Board of Directors as one of the athlete reps. Um, so we have three, three athlete reps. Our board is made up of um, 12 individuals. So you always have to have a certain amount of athletes, um, athlete reps on your board of directors if you're a national governing body um, under the USOPC. So my role started 2017, a little bit too soon, I would say, after I retired. I always knew that I wanted to give back to the sport that gave me so much. So I owe field hockey a lot. Um, and the board position opened and I was asked to try and run for it. And I'm like, I feel like it's, it's kind of too early. Like I still have the, oh my gosh, this has been a lot of field hockey. Let me get away for a bit. But um, the timing was a bit soon, but I decided to run anyway. Um, and I thought with the connection I had with the players, it would be the best it'd be a good liaison avenue to, to better bridge the athlete group that we have. So our men's and women's national team bridge the communication better to the board, because, you know, in my experiences, I, I found some faults. I found some things that were good. I found some things that were bad. So I had some things I wanted to fix. So serving on the board is just my way of giving back. Um, I'm up for a second term. I actually think the election ended yesterday, so don't know results, but I may be doing a second four-year term, um, but my position on the USA Field Hockey Board also puts me as a member of the Athlete Advisory Council for the USOPC. So without trying to get too confusing, um, every national governing body under the USOPC, so basically every Olympic sport has an athlete representative um, on the Athlete Advisory Council. The Athlete Advisory Council is basically 
the athlete voice that that talks to the USOPC board to try and influence and make sure that um, what's being done on decision on on like the executive level or the decision making. Um, they understand how it affects athletes. So it's kind of that athlete voice. And um, it's a it's a group that's done a lot of work, I'd say over the last four to eight years to get more formality to it. Um, so I go to those meetings. We usually meet, I think now it's been virtual, but usually meet in person once or twice a year. And that's pretty cool because you get to see, you get the, the winter games, which I, I never got to interact with winter game athletes because um, you know, you never time up on the summer thing. So it's just interesting. It's basically a space. So a space where one representative from every sport, um, Olympic sport and Paralympic sport is in a room and you just, in a way you get to hear that your story and the struggles you have, you're not alone. The issues you have under your sport are issues that many other sports have, but you also get to see that you might be better off than other sports, right? So um, it's an interesting committee that way. And I'm glad that I've had the exposure to, um, to that group that I, that I've had so far and hopefully we'll continue to do that. But, um, that's the extent of my involvement with the USOPC. A lot of the, um, communications we get from the athlete advisory council, they do a really good job of keeping us informed of what's happening, um, changes in law, like, especially with, um, a lot that's been going on in the USOPC and having our, our government involved and trying to have oversight with the issues, um, the immense issues that have gone on. Athletes' rights have been a really big topic in these last two years and finally getting the attention that they deserve. So it's been interesting to be part of a group that is trying to better the experience for the athlete to allow athletes to be, from a mental health perspective, to be better supported um, on their journey and then after their journey, that's a really big one. Um, and to just, to just fight for the athletes who drive a lot of the Olympic movement to get what they need and resources that, that makes it sustainable to be an athlete. So, um, so it's cool. It's, it's, it's been interesting to go from being a player and having all the frustrations I had of what our NGB did or what the USOPC did and now sitting in a seat where you can make decisions and realizing that they're not as simple as you thought that they were, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, what? Why can't you just have a, why can't I just post whatever I want on social media? And you're like, oh, there's gotta be rules and regulations as to what you do and sponsorships and marketing and people who have the rights to do. Just so many of those things that as an athlete, you were never worried about because you shouldn't be, um, but just learning a whole new level of sport, um, as it relates to letting athletes go and play and do. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And I feel like now more than ever, the athletes rights conversation, number one, and then the mental health conversation, number two, have been more elevated and more discussed um, than ever before. So that's gotta be really interesting to have a seat at the table and um, exciting to have that type of leadership role and, um, and a say in, in what happens moving forward. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you, I don't know if anyone has or hasn't said on a board, like the way that, that board meetings run and decisions are made and like the um, like motions and seconds and the, it can be super overwhelming. I think it's important for people 
um, who are in organized sport like that to understand some of the natures behind it and that change takes a little bit of time, obviously with, with some of the athletes rights things, um, it's, it's finally getting the attention it deserves, but it's not like, oh, this is a problem. This was a problem four years ago and we missed it. It's been a, it's been a continued constant problem. And now we finally have the voices to be able to speak up and say, we, we need something to change. And the USOPC is, is heavily engaging athletes to figure out what to do next. The, um, the CEO, Sarah Hirschland is incredible. Um, with I think her leadership in the way she'll sit in on our meetings and she'll just do open Q and A's. And um, she's just very blunt, you know, again, with that, with that directness of, okay, well, what do you see this and really difficult decisions. She, she can just be very honest and be like, you know what? It's a great point. We don't have a solution for that. What do you think? You know, like help us. If you're the athlete voice, go back to your athletes, help us help you in a way. So um, she, she, I've been very impressed with, with her leadership in like the two instances in meetings that, that she's been there. Um, she's increased communication a lot to the athlete population. So there's some good things coming down the pipeline from the USOPC that I'm impressed with. And, um, obviously some work to still be done. Yeah. And you just dropped another really great leadership nugget there with the example of Sarah with, if you don't have a solution, calling out that you don't have a solution and then asking for a recommendation from the group and um, having an open discussion on what those solutions might be. I think sometimes with, with leadership, um, some leaders can be prone to try to know it all or have all the answers. Um, but I think what we're finding is that the more open you are, um, the more candid or authentic or honest with what you do have the answers for what you don't, the more buy-in you're going to get from the group around you. That like, it's okay not to know. And that that's, that's one of my learning lessons um, that I learned in my, in our four-year build up to 2016. Like, it's okay not to have the answers. If you realize there's an issue and you can bring up the issue, that's a huge part of taking the steps to then solve it and then facilitate a solution. I mean, I think I've always been put into leadership positions because again, I'm so impatient. And if something needs to be solved, I'm like, let's do this. Let's, there's no, okay, let's talk about it. And um, like, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. Well, if your actions aren't actually trying to solve this and you're not actually making changes, then you're just talking. And mm -hmm. it's like, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. And I think that's such a fatal flaw. And so many people, when they think of leadership, in my opinion, in America, we have a very like mono captain system. We're like, okay, you're the captain. You're the one person. What, what are we going to wear to practice? What are we going to wear to travel? What are we going to wear? Uh, what time do you guys want to eat? Like all of these logistic questions that for me in 2011 and 2012, I was put to answer all of these. Um, Cause this is the best example I can give, you know, like what color do we want to play Argentina again? So I'm like, I don't know, like what's it Navy or red? I'm like Navy. Well, come to find out that like all the girls feel better in red and they look better and that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care what I look like. <laughs> and that was a big learning point of like, you don't have to make these decisions on your own because you're asked. And so then it was like, you know what? Let's ask the group simple things like that of like, hey guys, what color do you want to play our biggest rival in? They're like, oh, red, like that's what we're so good at. And we feel fierce. And I'm like, cool, we want to be in red. I didn't care either way, but, but 
knowing that it's okay to like realizing it wasn't my strength. That was my first thing is what we wear. Definitely not a strength of mine. Cause I didn't care at all. Um, about certain things and things that I didn't care about, somebody else did. And if I knew who that was, I'm asking them to make the decision because that's what they care most about. And if it doesn't matter to me, but I know it is a point where it, it is going to be like a one percenter. We talk about that in, um, in elite sport is if you can get a one percent advantage, like what are one percenters that you can just add up to give you that slight advantage? Um, and there's a lot of those where you realize as a leader, like you don't have to be the sole one making all the decisions um, and, and standing by them and like, yes, this is what we're doing. You're like, oh, you guys didn't like that? Okay, well, what's a better way to do this? And this is what we'll do mm-hmm. from now on. Um, I just think the ability and the awareness to know that it's okay not to know and to ask others, that's where it comes into like developing leaderful people, right? If you have trust in the development of your teammates and what their strengths and weaknesses are, you're going to trust that they're going to make good decisions based on what the common goal is. And you just created an army of people who are all bound by that same goal versus you making decisions for them that they might not be on board with. Yeah. So pop-up leadership can give you that 1%. Yeah. hundred percent. So want to talk a little bit about your transition um, away from USA field hockey. And now you're transitioning from athlete to real person. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was interesting. I mean, I'm very fortunate that what I retired from my sport, um, healthy in my own right. Right. It wasn't like a coach saying, Hey, Lauren, kind of getting old, should probably get out of there. Um, so it was, it was fully my own decision that I had known going into the 2016 uh, um, year. So I knew I'd be done um, and I could plan for that transition. So I had a part-time job, but I was working at a, um, a flooring manufacturer. They did um, Ecore Athletic. They did like the rubber flooring you'd see in gyms, the speckled, the really cool stuff. There's so much technology that goes in behind it. But um, I was working part-time for them. And in the beginning of 2016, I was talking about what my future looked like. I was like, listen, I'd love to stay on. Um, So I thought I knew what my job would be after the Olympics, which I think is very important to have. I mean, everyone thinks differently. Some people are like, no, in order to fully focus, you need to have no plans after the Olympic games and go into it with like full head, heart, and spirit. I did that in 2008. And the downfall that you have post-games with nothing planned is, is kind of like a serious mental health type thing where you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Where am I? So, um, so I had a plan. I knew that I was going to move to Reno. Um, and then I knew that I would have this job. So it took a lot of pressure off of me. Um, and then when it came post games, um, when it came, the job ended up not working out just for, for different reasons of working out of state and whatnot. Um, which I was still okay with because that one, that was just a time for me to figure out what I did want to do. And um, I I think what was good for me is I had always had like a part-time job while I was training. So I never fully allowed myself to just be defined as an athlete. Like, Oh, you're an athlete. You don't do this. Like I, I got my master's while I was um, training. So I went back to school. Um, I had a, I had a few different part-time jobs. And so it just allowed me to still have a piece of, 
you're an athlete and you train hard and this is what you do, but you're also a student or, but you're also um, a part-time worker in the marketing department who's trying to learn social media stuff, which I'm still really bad at. So I always had other things that I could hang my hat, mostly because I was stubborn. I didn't want people to think I was just, I hate when people just define me as an athlete, like you're an Olympian. I'm like, well, yeah, but I, but I'm also doing this stuff and like, I'm intelligent. And, um, you know, I just, I don't, I don't know why I always had that stubbornness, like chip on my shoulder thing, but I did, but I really think that helped in my transition. Um, because I didn't have to shed the definition of being an athlete. I was ready to take the next step into just figuring out what is my next step. Um, and my now boss had reached out to me via actually the athlete network. I think that's what it's called. I had signed up probably through one of the, um, one of the ACE events that the USOPC holds for athletes. So they have some, some mentorship and career opportunity things they can help with resumes. And at one of those things, I signed up for this athlete network. I had no idea. It was like a profile. I think it's like a LinkedIn, but specific to athletes. I don't really know. And my boss found me on that reached out. I ignored him a few times. He's very persistent. Um, but saw I was in Reno, saw my background and was like, Hey, what do you think about commercial insurance? And I was like, mm, sounds pretty horrible. And he's like, give it a chance. <laughs> and at that point, I think the biggest thing when you, when you transition from sport into, I call it the real world is to just be open to opportunities. Just say yes to everything because every yes is going to get you closer to, I like this or I don't like this. Right. So there is no, there is no wrong turn, right? Your wrong turn is just something that directs you on your journey of like, mm, really don't like this. Let's see what else you have. So being open to those opportunities. And I told, I told him I'd take a meeting with him and then I met him and his boss and then interviews later and some research on the culture of the company. And then I was like, you know what? It seems like the culture, the company is something that I want to be part of. Um, and three years later, I'm, I'm still with them. So it was, it was, for me, I didn't struggle that much transitioning. I know I've spoken with some of my teammates and other athletes who have just um, it's been really difficult for them and there's no right or wrong way with a lot of things. But I think the most important thing to know is that we don't realize when you get to that elite level of sport, you don't realize that the people you're surrounded by are the best of the best, which means they're the most driven. They're the most motivated. They're the most talented. They're the most disciplined. They're the most of everything of your sport. And you just normalize that. And you just assume that every other person on the planet is just as motivated, is just as disciplined, is just as willing to work hard. And when you get into the real world, you realize like, hmm, I am a little bit different. Like I am a little bit strange in that um, in my work ethic or in, in my ability to stay disciplined or um, just in so many facets. And everyone always told me um, throughout my career, like, oh, you'll get a job, no problem. And like, you'll be great in sales, which I now am in, but I never wanted to be in, but like, you'll get a job, no problem. Like, you don't get it. I was 31 when I retired with like no prior experience, but like, it doesn't matter. And truly, and I tell athletes that now, and I'm sure they don't believe me, but you truly, what you learn in being part, at least for me, being part of a team sport, being in a leadership position, but just competing at, at an elite level you have all the tools you need to be a great asset to a company. And you don't know that until you go out there and you see what your competition is. I'd say that, but um, the companies that 
appreciate that and will help you succeed are the ones that understand what your background is and are willing to help you learn that trade because obviously your trade was in something else. Um, so that was, I now look back and I'm like, it's so funny. Like all these athletes and girls on the national team now, I'm like, guys, don't be so quick to leave or feel like, cause you have this constant feeling of my peers are doing this and they're making money and they're taking steps and they're getting promotions. And I have the same degree as them yet. I'm just putting on my turfs and going out and playing a game. And it's, it's a lot more than that. And I, I don't think we talk enough to athletes prior to them transitioning, helping them realize that and then work with them before they retire so that they're ready mindset wise to, to work that transition. That's been really great. It's such a great perspective. Um, First, you kept your mind open. So as much as you were unilaterally focused on the success of the U.S. women's field hockey team, you still allowed yourself the space to explore Lauren post professional sports career. Mm -hmm. Leaving that little gap um, is what, what gave you more of a comfort zone. But then after the fact, like the things that made you a great athlete are the things that make you a great employee, your competitiveness, um, your drive, all those leadership skills. We've drawn so many parallels in this interview from your leadership skills in the sport to the leadership skills in a corporate environment or in the boardroom. It's, it's, it's evident. Um, so I just, I love hearing this success story and, and these examples from you. And I really hope that the listeners really take heed of that and, and understand um, keeping your head up, keeping your eyes open, looking for opportunities, not being afraid to fail, learning from those failures, like those key pieces of, of who you are and how you progress through life is what is going to reveal the next opportunity. Everything comes to an end, no matter what it is, if it's a TV show or a game or college or an iteration of your career, there's going to be a transition point. And so, you know, you really laid out sort of the guideposts on, on how to move through a transition successfully. Yeah. And I'm still working on it. I mean, it's, it's also funny to hear from your perspective and what your experiences have been, you know, in, uh, at that level, um, of like, is it sports administration? Is that like more or less what you do? Like I, you only know your own experiences, right? So for me in my sport, making the parallels I have to my job now, which is basically I control my own fate in, in sales in a way, but still hearing from you that, that the experiences I've had relate even to the job you do or leadership. It's just, I think it's so, that's why I love that you're doing the podcast because leadership can be simplified and the ability to influence people and the successful leaders. There are so many common threads and, and the good ones that lead very well into a positive direction for achievement. Um, I guess those threads don't stop depend uh, throughout, you know, whatever job you do. And that's something I'm still learning of like, Oh, really? Like, are you sure that that matters? And I have the skills to succeed. Like, you know, there's still some doubt I have for myself which I think is important is to keep like a humble nature of, okay, I can still learn more. I can still do more. I can, I can be better at what I'm doing now. But I think, again, that's the drive of um, what, what puts us into positions to make changes. So it's, it's interesting to hear 
you speak about your experience. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I hundred percent. And I have to, um, ask you the, the final question that I ask all the guests and we had a great little dialogue about this beforehand, um, about your favorite quote. So everyone, um, listen up, Lauren is going to lay it down. Okay. So I was hesitant when you initially asked, <laughs> I set my you up. Quote. Yeah. <laughs> there's no because, getting out of it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the shock factor, it's something that I have repeated over and over in my head when I'm in the middle of an awful workout. And I have had countless awful workouts when you, it's a random Tuesday, you let's say this, I broke my foot a few weeks before the 2016 Olympic game. So I'm in a pool. I'm not a swimmer. Okay. I play field hockey. I'm in a pool by myself, no one around. And I have to push myself to swim, to keep up my aerobic capacity or whatever the story is for that. So what constantly goes in my head, which goes to my favorite quote is everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I don't like saying that because it sounds like I'm super hardcore cutthroat, like, Ah, but I, I think the meaning behind it for me is um, everybody wants to succeed. Everybody, well, I would assume everybody, you, if you're going to the Olympics, you want to be a gold medalist. You want to be standing on that podium, but so does everybody else. And what are you willing to do? What sacrifices are you willing to make? How hard are you willing to work and push your, your body and push your mind so that you actually do achieve, right? And, and for me, it's... Um, it goes back to lessons I learned of don't just say something, do something. So don't talk about what you want to achieve and, and, you know, sit in a meeting and be like, yeah, I want to be the best. It's like, okay, so what's that going to take? You got to be in here at 6am and you got to put in an hour of practice for this one specific skill before we start our team training and then do. So in my dark times of, um, of physical training pain, that quote, often went through my head of my motivating factor of not everybody's willing to go through this pain. Not everybody's willing to push. And when you're tired and you still have two sets more, how much more pain are you willing to put yourself through so that you might succeed? And there's no, it's not promised, you know, I never want a gold medal in Olympics. Um, but I always push myself to do it. So that quote in my dark times, I would say of physical pain, uh, was something that motivated me. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And I'm so happy you shared it, or maybe I made you share it because <laughs> there's so many parallels in the workplace. Everyone wants to be the boss until it's super hard or until you have to get an MBA or until you have to work for 12 years, meeting your goal annually, you know, to be awarded the position. Um, we can't skip over all the hard work and just get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, you, you've got to, how can you level up? How can you be better than the next person? So I guess I tricked you because I'm going to ask you one more question. <laughs> what is your one piece of advice? Like one lay, you know, lay it out, leave it behind. Like what's one thing that women can do today to level up tomorrow? I mean, I just say, put your head down and run hard uh, that I just think don't, don't be overly concerned with, with what's happening and um, how you're doing comparative to other people. And there's so much, at least from my experiences, both as an athlete and now um, in sales, there's so much that you can't control. 
Um, but there's also so much that you can. So I just always think my first two years in this job, I was like, put your head down. You know what numbers you need to hit. You know what that what that means on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. So put your head down, thinking about that and run hard. And the success is going to come. Um, the results are going to come because you've put in the work and you're learning from it. So that when you look back to see how far you ran, you look back and you'd be like, oh, wow, that that was my success. Those are my results. But if we constantly look at, okay, I'm going to do this, but, but did that give me a result? And we're only focusing on the results. Um, we, we put ourselves at more of a disadvantage because we see more obstacles there. Whereas if you just keep your head down and you barrel through, um, and you're just focusing on that next step and those, those small steps, you'll get to where you want to go. I mean, look up every once in a while to make sure directionally it's the right <laughs> way, celebrate results and successes. That's something I never did very well as an athlete is I didn't always celebrate the big victories. Cause I was just so focused on what's next. Um, but you really, from a mental health perspective, you need to celebrate the victories. So I would say, put your head down and run, control what you can control and and know where you want to go and look up every once in a while. Love it. Mic drop from uh, Laura yeah. Randall. <laughs> 279 games with the U.S. women's national field hockey team, three-time Olympian. The accolades just go on and on. I'm thrilled to have you and your voice on the Leadership is Female podcast. Thank you for sharing uh, all of your knowledge and experience with us. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. Wow. Thank you, Lauren. Lauren Crandall was a member of the women's national field hockey team from 2005 to 2016, where she competed in the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Olympic Games. She captained the team from 2011 to 2016 and shared with us today some really inspiring lessons on leadership. With that, let's get into the top four takeaways. Number one, pop-up leadership. The ability to have the people around you stand up at any given time when they recognize that a strength of theirs can be utilized. The greatest leaders create leaderful people to drive the force together where the team wants to go. Number two, the direct approach. When you know a problem needs to be solved and you know the answer, go there. Address the issue with the person who it involves so you can squash it immediately. Develop emotional intelligence to recognize concerns before they turn into issues and issues before they turn into problems. What are the issues that are developing inside your, quote, locker room talk? Be a leader with high awareness. Number three, keep an open mind. Have the self-awareness to know when it's time to move on and leave space to dream about what's next in your life. And number four, are you willing to do what it takes to achieve your goals? Lauren's quote, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. What that means is we all want the best, the glory, the money, but be real and ask yourself, are you willing to put in the work and do what it takes to achieve your dreams? Thank you for listening to the Leadership is Female podcast. It means the world to me that you chose to spend your time with this podcast today. If you like this episode, subscribe, share, and review. What can you do today to lead her forward? We will do our part to lead her forward because leadership is female. Thank you for joining us. This podcast was recorded and edited by Emily Jansen, public relations by Paige Hegedus, and distributed by Anchor FM.